3 Z. 92.3 FM. The following program is in English. Thank you. You're tuned in to the Lachaim Summer Series with your host, Morris Klein, and yes, he is still my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Shalom. Welcome to the Israel Part 2, last installment of our Lachaim Summer Series 2022, with three excellent guests who joined us on Lachaim during our first year. Lieutenant Colonel Reserve Saritza Harvey, the woman explaining the Hezbollah threat to the world, Frank Malul with the I-24 news story, and Maria Ben-David in the ZFA, Zionist Federation of Australia, Israel office. And speaking of Israel, I headed off with our Lachaim Mythbuster man, David Schilberg, does a great job, to the GIF Jewish International Film Festival 2022, program launched last Sunday at the Classic Cinemas, and really enjoyed the special screening of the Israeli movie, Greener Pastures. And no, it's not Enery Greener. Without giving too much away, the movie's about a few retirees, medicinal marijuana, and a creative money-making venture. A good fun movie covering some interesting issues with plenty of Israeli character. As always, the GIF 2022 program booklet is a great read with this year's GIF featuring Heroes of Change. We'll have lots of GIF news in the month ahead, along with GIF artistic director Eddie Tamir joining us on Lachaim for a GIF rundown. And a very happy Chinese New Year to everyone. Except, of course, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, causing Wuhan COVID havoc around the world and persecuting a million Uyghurs in concentration camps? Zolza CCP Alifa Brennan Baron. And throw in the anti-Israel, anti-Semitic Amnesty International, along with Whoopi Goldberg, into the hateful tulant. Let's close out our Lechaim Summer Series 2022 here on 92.3 FM 3 Z with our three excellent Israeli guests. But first, let's hear the news from Jerusalem, courtesy of Israel News Talk Radio. I'm Ernie Singer, and this is your daily newscast from Israel News Talk Radio. Residents of the Shuafat refugee camp in northern Jerusalem clashed with border police on Tuesday when they came to seal the fourth-floor apartment of the Hamas terrorist who murdered South African immigrant Eli Kay and wounded two others with a submachine gun last November in Jerusalem's old city. On Monday, the Supreme Court rejected the appeal of the terrorist's family against the ceiling. Public television reported Monday night that the defense establishment is working to neutralize the reemergence over the past few weeks of severe global positioning satellite disruptions on planes as they prepare to land at Ben-Gurion Airport. The GPS disruptions have been attributed to advanced and powerful Russian defense systems at the Hemimim Air Base in the Syrian port city of Latakia, which disrupt electromagnetic waves in the eastern Mediterranean area in general. The Russians have refused an Israeli request to stop using the systems, saying they are intended to protect their soldiers. The problem first occurred in 2019. 
The Israel Defense Forces said Monday night the two commanders will be removed from their positions immediately and a third will be formally censured following a disciplinary probe into the death of a 78-year-old Palestinian Authority resident with American citizenship who suffered a heart attack after he was bound, gagged, and abandoned by troops this month outside the Sumerian PA village of Jildilia when he refused to identify himself at a checkpoint. Three other PA residents were released from the scene. A military police investigation will determine if charges will be filed against the soldiers involved. The disciplinary probe found an ethical failure by the soldiers and a mistake in their thought process, alongside a severe violation of the value of respecting people, as well as professional gaps in the planning and running of the checkpoint. Haaretz reports the commander of the soldiers' battalion said on Tuesday that the military would need to weigh transferring the battalion outside Judea and Samaria. The Times of Israel reports Arab member of Knesset Isawe Fridge of the ruling coalition's left-wing Meretz party has rejected Amnesty UK's latest accusations of Israeli mistreatment of Arabs on both sides of the 1949 armistice line to benefit Jews. It calls for an end of military assistance to Israel and a ban on products from beyond the armistice line. Fridge said that Israel has many problems that must be solved on both sides of the line, but it is not an apartheid state. A foreign ministry statement on Monday called on Amnesty not to release the document, saying the report consolidates and recycles lies, inconsistencies, and unfound assertions that originate from well-known anti-Israeli hate organizations, all with the aim of reselling damaged goods in new packaging. Repeating the same lies of hate organizations over and over does not make the lies reality, but rather makes Amnesty illegitimate. The PA, Hamas, and several Arab factions welcome the document, saying it paves the way for filing war crimes charges against Israel with the International Criminal Court. Entertainer and TV host Whoopi Goldberg has issued an apology for saying the Holocaust was not about race, but man's inhumanity to man, essentially because the Jews and their Nazi German persecutors were two groups of white people. In a Twitter post, she wrote she should have said it is about both race and inhumanity. Quoting now, as Jonathan Greenblatt from the Anti-Defamation League shared, the Holocaust was about the Nazis' systematic annihilation of the Jewish people, who they deemed to be an inferior race. I stand corrected. She also said she was sorry for the hurt she had caused. After repeated denials that they had misused NSO Group's Pegasus hacking software to infiltrate civilians' phones without justification, the Israel police now say they have additional findings on the matter that change things in certain aspects because of their internal probe in response to media pressure. Outgoing Attorney General Avichai Mandelblit has ordered immediate action to prevent any further deviations from police authority as the investigation continues. This has been Ernie Singer at Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Joining us tonight on L'Chaim to Life is Lieutenant Colonel Reserve Sarit Zahabi, founder and CEO of the NGO ELMA, which is based in Israel's Galilee in the north. The ELMA Research and Education Center is a non-profit and bipartisan organization with the mission of making in-depth geopolitical knowledge about the Middle East accessible to English speakers. In addition to offering field briefings at various lookout posts along Israel's northern border with Lebanon and Syria, ALMA also provides lectures and workshops around the globe based on daily research and analysis of the developments in Israel's border conflicts. Because all the ALMA research team reside in Israel's northern border communities, ALMA is uniquely equipped to combine its professional expertise and background with the first-person perspective of how the conflict is affecting life near Israel's borders. Elmer's work addresses the changing cultural climate and current trend in Muslim societies 
in light of other events in Israel's neighbouring countries, while focusing on how they all impact the IDF security challenges along Israel's volatile northern border. The Alma Centre is funded by private philanthropists from all over the globe who believe in Alma's cause. Shalom, Lieutenant Colonel Reserve Saritza Harvey. Welcome to Lachaim, to life, Jewish life and more. Shalom, good morning. That was a bit of a lengthy intro. Sarit, at the beginning of July, you were the guest of the Australian Jewish Association on their Zoom night. It's been a while since you and I have spoken on air, which we have done many times with your great knowledge and insight. Much has transpired since our last on-air discussion and the AJA Zoom. Before looking at the latest developments and issues on Israel's northern borders, I feel we need to discuss Afghanistan. Sarit, please, as a former senior Israeli military intelligence officer still in the reserves, please, how did the most powerful intelligence apparatus in the world get it so wrong with its pulling out of Afghanistan? Everything about it defies logic. I, I agree. This is the $1 million question. How come Americans didn't anticipate what is about to happen? Because not only, you know, I don't want to say clear because we are all smart looking backwards, but it was almost obvious and understandable that this is what will happen. Even Americans evaluated that it may happen within a few weeks. So where are the plans for evacuation? What to do with those who are evacuated? Moreover, They were experienced, not only by their own experience, by the way. These kind of things happened to us as Israelis in the past in South Lebanon. And trying to compare this, of course, the amount of forces is completely different. Trying to compare this. So you know what? We used to criticize our withdrawal from Lebanon for years. But when I see what is happening in Afghanistan, I say, okay, maybe what happened that night on May 2000 was not that bad. The evacuation uh, process uh, between Israel and Lebanon was, was much easier, and we entered the Lebanese into Israel, those who asked for shelter. So, now I don't want to be too criticizing the, the Americans, but definitely it's a question that we try to understand what exactly happened. How come they didn't anticipate uh, this very sad outcome? And I'm not talking just about the future of the Middle East, I'm talking about the future of Ghanis themselves, which is now under question. Definitely. So what do you feel are the implications for Israel in the Middle East with this display of American policy impotence, incompetence? Will these recent events and developments strengthen the terrorists in Israel's region, believing that Israel does not have America's support anymore? I don't know. Uh, It really depends not only on what specifically happened now, but what messages and the policy would be afterwards. And if the United States will be capable of sending a, a clear and a different message afterwards, on the one hand to our enemies and on the other hand to our allies, I think that Afghanistan effect will not be that big as we are now uh, afraid of. I do think there is a lot of work to be done around that to strengthen our allies in the Middle East and to strengthen U.S. allies in the Middle East, which is, of course, first and foremost Israel. I am not sure, you know, terrorist organizations will change their policy following what is happening in Afghanistan. Their policy is already against Israel. Their goal is to destroy the state of Israel. Many of them view United States as an enemy more than they view Israel as an enemy. So I don't think in this respect it will bring to a total change of policy. But uh, no doubt that uh, the American policy now is very important to send a very clear message to all these players around us here. 
definitely. Most important, will America's shambolic debacle withdrawal from Afghanistan weaken America's position against Iran, letting them believe that America won't do anything to stop Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon? Yes, I think that this was a very important statement that was made by President Biden during Prime Minister Bennett's visit in the United States. Very important statement because for the first time during negotiations or around negotiations of the JCPOA, an American president is saying, okay, but all options are on the table. And this is very important for the success of the negotiations, for the success of getting a better deal and actually restraining the Iranian nuclear program. And time's pretty critical. Sarit, Israel is very familiar with the Hamas tunnels and the Hezbollah tunnels on Israel's northern border, which you have been through. On August 12th, Elmer exposed for the first time a new strategic challenge for the IDF and Israel, Hezbollah's land of tunnels. Elmer's report on this has been picked up by major news organisations worldwide. Sarit, please take us through the implications of this important discovery and the exposure. First, I must say that using underground for operational goals is not something that is unique to our region, not in Lebanon and not in the Middle East. This is something that uh, I have seen years ago in Vietnam when I visited there as a tourist. This is something that we have seen in Nazi Germany in World War II. So using underground in order to be capable of maneuvering forces from one place to another without nobody knowing, this is a a methodology that was used for years and decades by other armies and not only terrorist organizations. And I think that we should have known that. We should have understand that much earlier, that this is the method and why not using that elsewhere. Now, when uh, IDF had found the border crossing tunnels, this question should have been asked. If there are border crossing tunnels, Could there be more to transfer soldiers also from one area in Lebanon to another, to transfer ammunition from one area to another? And uh, we used to overrule this because it looked too expensive and too complicated. But when you look at the tunnels, the border crossing tunnels where I visited, I am not sure that it's that complicated. And you know what? I'm not sure that even it's that expensive because it's not in the standards of the West. Okay, you're not building now uh, tunnels for... uh, civilian cars that will drive them. You are building tunnels for uh, soldiers, for combatants. And then came uh, the guardian of the walls in Gaza, and everybody saw that the IDF uh, bombed the Hamas, they called the Hamas metal. Uh, these were tunnels with really hundreds of kilometers under a very small area. So uh, we start to research and check. And again, uh, surprisingly enough, because this is an information which is not obvious that would be found in, in open sources. Surprisingly enough, we found information in open sources uh, about this topic, an article from 2008 that described exactly the methodology and described exactly how Hezbollah is trying to hide this from the residents of this area. And even named the towns where there is an infrastructure, underground infrastructure like that. And what we had done is we went to check the different pieces in the article. We went to check the company, Iranian company, a North Korean company that was mentioned in the article. We went to check the area and we managed to map the area. And we managed to draw lines between those villages that were mentioned in the article. And then we actually saw the route of the tunnel, of one of the tunnels that connects the rational area of Hezbollah with another. And since we're already familiar with the operational areas of Hezbollah, we understand the logic behind it. And eventually, the question we asked, why not? Why not doing that? It took them decades. It's a huge project. But why not? Everybody has been using this for decades, everybody around the world. Yeah. 
it connects three very strategic uh, Hezbollah areas. It's amazing with the Lebanese uh, geology. There's a full report on the Alma uh, website. I'll give out the details after. So, Rick, we know Hezbollah controls much of what goes on in Lebanon, especially in the south, and I'll come back to imploding Lebanon in a moment. Iran and Hezbollah are doing everything possible to entrench themselves in the south of Syria. The IDF is on a mission to prevent this happening. Please take us through the latest developments here. These developments uh, started, it's a process that it started around uh, two years ago, three years ago, actually, when the rebels lost in the border areas. The rebels controlled the area of the border between Israel and Syria between 2013 to 2018. There were battles on the time we could see the civil war, and eventually they lost and the Syrian government uh, won. But to say that the Syrian government won is inaccurate because eventually it's not only the Syrian government, it's the Syrian government and its allies. And immediately we have seen the entrance of more players into the region, beginning from the Russians through the Hezbollah, the Lebanese Hezbollah, and then the Iranians. And this process is still going on. And what we actually see is multiple players arena, extremely complicated and difficult to understand who is against who and who is the strongest player there. But we see more and more players there that are becoming loyal to the Iranians, whether they are Syrians, local Syrians, uh, the same leaders of the militias that in the past used to fight against the Syrian government and against its allies like Iran and Hezbollah, they became now loyal, they shift their loyalty, uh, and now they are loyal to the IRGC, to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And that way you can also understand a little bit of Syria. You can also understand a little bit of what is Syria today in a situation of after a decade of a civil war. Uh, ideology is very nice, but it's not enough. Eventually, when people don't have the bread, the money and the ammunition, they will turn uh, to those who can supply them. And in southern Syria, in the area where we are looking at uh, from the border, it's Iran. And it is there uh, to provide them. And that's why we traced uh, 36 mercenary militias like that, that became loyal to the Iranians, which are actually Sunnis now, not like the Iranians, are not yet. Moreover, we have seen Hezbollah deploying over there with two units. One unit is the Southern Command Unit, which is actually supporting the Syrian army. The Lebanese Hezbollah commanders are supporting and training the Syrian commanders. And that way, the Syrian commanders are also becoming loyal to the Iranians themselves. The other unit is the Golan Fire Unit, which is, again, it's composed of locals, of Syrian locals, but they are subordinate to the IRGC, and their mission is to carry out terrorist attacks against Israel. And last... All of that is leaned upon a wide civilian infrastructure that is now being built by the Iranians in southern Syria, uh, whether it's religious, social, economic, agriculture, etc. Okay, very concerning. Sarit, one last question. Lebanon is imploding economically. It's now a basket case with lines everywhere, banks for food, bread, petrol, Power blackouts with plants running out of fuel due to uh, a lack of foreign currency to pay energy suppliers. Pharmacies have also gone on strike over medicine shortages, again caused by the failure to pay foreign importers and much, much more. How do you see all this playing out for Israel? Uh, Not good. (laughs) (laughs) Israel would want to see stability in Lebanon. Israel would want to see prosperity in Lebanon, and Israel is willing to help for this to happen. But unfortunately, the Lebanese are not interested in any Israeli assistance. And unfortunately, the crisis in Lebanon, it's the nature of this crisis is a crisis that was created by the Lebanese leadership 
whether it's Hezbollah or others. Traditional leadership that is there uh, for decades completely disappointed and stole the Lebanese uh, budgets. And we see this every day. The army reveals more and more storages of oil and medicines in the hands of those who are affiliated with the current leadership, whether they are Hezbollah or others. Hezbollah, of course, contributed greatly to this because it is not enabling the Lebanese to solve the political crisis and it insists on its political power inside Lebanon. And since there is never a vacuum and the Lebanese government is not functioning, Hezbollah is taking over many of the civilian system in, uh, in Lebanon and that way providing to not all the population, but in many areas, providing what the population doesn't get from the Lebanese government and that way taking over gradually on Lebanon. Where is this taking us? If the international community will wake up and the Lebanese diaspora will wake up and provide humanitarian aid, it will go directly to the Lebanese, not through, how should I put it, suspected, suspected organizations, those who are not organizations that you cannot count on. Forgot the word in English. NGOs affiliated with Hezbollah. Affiliated with Hezbollah, with Hamas. And we've seen this just uh, this week. We published a report about that. And we'll really get into this issue using the UN, entering humanitarian organizations that will provide what needs to be provided to the Lebanese. And there are many humanitarian organizations around the world. It's, it's not a problem to do so. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, understand that Hezbollah is not the counterpart to negotiate with. Because the moment that president of uh, France is negotiating with Hezbollah politically, it is legitimizing Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. It is using the Lebanese land to promote its terrorist agenda. By the way, a terrorist organization that is harming and damaging not only the state of Israel, but also the also the United States. The whole region. Around, around the globe and, of course, the Lebanese themselves. Correct. <laughs> You're right. No good. So, Rich, you just mentioned you're publishing another report. So I'd like to let our listeners know if they want to follow you and Elma, they can sign up for a weekly informative email at elma-israel.org, also with the Elma-Israel Facebook page. And I urge our Lechaim listeners to do so and remind our listeners that Elma is a not-for-profit organisation and perhaps a small supporting donation wouldn't go astray. Lieutenant Colonel Reserve Zaritza Harvey, I would like to thank you sincerely for joining us on L'Chaim to Life with your extensive knowledge and insight. Let's have you back regularly with your important work. Thank you very much for having me. Shana Tava. Shana Tava. Swiss-born Frank Malul is a media personality and foreign affairs specialist. He studied law and also has degrees in international relations and negotiation. Among numerous French government appointments, Frank had various responsibilities, including disarmament, terrorism, the Middle East and the United Nations during the Iraq crisis, and in the early 2000s participated in the Afghanistan-Pakistan negotiations at the Ministry of Foreign and European Affairs. Frank is the founder and CEO of the Israel-based international news channel, I-24 News, which began broadcasting in July 2013. It's about hearing all the voices. It's about looking for all angles. It's about knowing the bigger picture. It's about telling the whole story. It's about time for I-24 News. I-24 News brings you world news from the heart of the Middle East. Three channels... 
three languages. Make you look at the world. English, French, Arabic. 24 hours a day. Shalom. I'm asking you to choose that future. Uncompromising journalism with a fresh voice and a fair perspective. You have to constantly question your own position. To try and challenge things people tend to take for granted. See beyond the surface. The real people behind the story. See beyond the pictures. The questions that people haven't asked before. See beyond the headlines. You have to have your finger on the ball <laughs> to keep up with it. I do for news. See beyond. Welcome to L'Chaim, Frank. Thank you, Louis. Frank, you were communications advisor to former French Prime Minister Dominique de Villepin, as well as a director of strategy, research and international business development at the state-owned French company that oversees the activities of the major public media organisations broadcasting internationally from France. What was it about the way international television channels were presenting Israel to the world that led you to consider establishing an Israeli international news service? So, uh, first of all, I would like to thank you to welcome me in your show. It's a, it's a big pleasure and, uh, and for me a, a huge achievement for I24 News to, to be broadcast now in Australia. So you are my first interview in the region and I'm, I'm very pleased to be with you uh, today. To answer your question, you know, I was working for the French government and uh, developing the French soft power since uh, Jacques Chirac asked me to be part of the team to launch France 24 after uh, President Sarkozy wanted to do something bigger and he organized a huge umbrella with all the French international broadcast. And part of my job as an executive VP of strategy was to merge all this media and also to develop a new strategy and a new storytelling in the world about the French values and the French foreign policy. And one day I got a call from a guy that I just heard about him. I know he was a tycoon in the, in the cable networks. The name is Patrick Drahi. And he said he wanted to have a coffee with me. It was in October 2012. And uh, I met him in Paris. I thought he wanted to speak about distribution of France 24 in his cable networks. And after two minutes, he started straight to the point and told me, look, I would like to launch something big in Israel, in the heart of the Middle East. I like what you did with France 24. I want to have you with me on board to develop exactly the same thing, but this time to show another reality because I'm totally fed up with the coverage about Middle East and especially when things are happening in Israel. He told me I was just a few weeks ago on the beach in Tel Aviv and for the first time of my life, I start to see rockets arriving uh, on the beach. I tried to find a place to hide myself I came back home, I started immediately to open TV show, and I was watching, because he was a French speaker, the French international news TV or French national TV, and no one was talking about the attack on Tel Aviv, but everybody was talking about the bombing in Gaza. And he said, this is not fair, this is not the reality I'm feeling when I'm in Israel, when I'm walking on the streets of Tel Aviv and I see Muslim and Jewish crossing each other in peace. And uh, I need you to, to come with me and to join me to build a new international network for the region to connect Israel to the world and to connect the world to the reality uh, of Israel. 
I was quite surprised by the offer, and I, it took me one month to resign for the French government. Uh, I did my Aliyah at the end of December 2012 with my wife and my two young children. And I found a place in uh, Jaffa because I always said to Patrick Drahi, my vision is to have a big newsroom. Because if people think that peace is not possible, it's because of the media, because the perception is coming from the media. And if you want to build something different, and if you want to show the reality, your keyword and the DNA of the channel will be coexistence. And if you are watching Al Jazeera, for example, or visiting Al Jazeera, you have one campus for the Arabic channel, and you have another campus for the English network. If you go to France 24, that was one of our biggest mistakes. We put the French and the English together and the Arabic in another place. Mm. If you go to BBC, you have a huge building. Every single floor is another language. If you go to America, Voice of America is in Washington, but the Arabic version of Al-Khura is in Virginia. <laughs> so I said, me, I want that the only place you have French speaking, Arabic speaking, and English speaking together are in Israel. And uh, when I told that to Patrick Drahi, he told me, Frank, uh, Good luck to find a big building in Tel Aviv. And one day he came uh, on bicycle in uh, Jaffa Port and he found an amazing building. It was a huge hangar, empty hangar. We asked to visit the place. There was a tender. So you can imagine when you are arriving from France and we are telling you in the heart of the Middle East, there is a tender. So you start to panic. You say, okay, I don't know what is it, how I will deal with that. And finally... Uh, God was with us and we won the tender one month after, in the middle of February. We got the keys the 1st of March. We started to build the 15th of March, 2013. And we launched 100 days after the free networks of I-24 News in Jaffa Port in French, English and Arabic. It's an amazing story. <laughs> There needs to be a book written about it, I think. <laughs> I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> How do you see I-24 News' future in relation to the recent signing of the Abraham Accords? So, you know, people were amazed by the Abraham Accords and especially to see on Israeli TV the Israeli host of the 8pm show co-hosting the show with a journalist from Dubai. Yeah. But that's the reality of I-24 News since day one. We are, as I said, showing the coexistence inside Israel, but we are also showing the coexistence in the Middle East. And with our Arabic network, every night, we, since the, the launch of the channel, we have a debate, daily debate, with Israeli and Palestinian. Uh, and this is unique, because if you are watching the biggest network in the world, they are not organizing debate. They are giving the opportunity to someone to speak from a small studio in Jerusalem, And after you have a round table with specialists and Palestinians explaining the Arab-Israeli conflict. Here in Israel, you are giving the floor to all the parties and uh, to all the actors of the conflict. You have even people from Hamas or people from Hezbollah joining our debates on I-24 News. So what happened really when the Abraham Accord arrived? Naturally, I-24 News became the platform of the new Middle East. And this is the reason why we became the first Israeli-based channel to have a partnership with an Arabic media. I signed a few months after the signature of the Abraham Accord, uh, a partnership with Abu Dhabi Media, which is the biggest platform in the Gulf. Right after, I signed another agreement with Dubai Media, which is very powerful in the region, as you know. 
And we were the first Israeli-based channel to be broadcast on a cable network, an Arabic. We are on Etisalat, which is the biggest Arabic cable network in the region. And we are also on Do, with the competitor. That means we have 100% broadcast uh, availability in the region. And uh, also, we are the first Israeli-based channel to open a bureau in an Arabic country, because I'm happy to tell you that since one month, uh, we inaugurate the first uh, bureau of I-24 News with a live studio position uh, in Dubai, in the media city. So just for the record, it took me five years to be broadcast in Israel. It took me eight years to be broadcast in Australia. It took me 10 minutes to be broadcast in Dubai. So it's showing you the, the new reality of the Middle East and the power and the impact of I-24 News in the region because these countries recognize our network as the place to come and to share their point of view, their values, and also to understand each other. And this is something unique because you used to have, as I said before, debates between Israeli and Palestinian every night. But now there is a game changer since the Abraham Accord, because you can see that the Palestinians are not anymore fighting with Israelis. Now they are fighting with people from the Gulf. And I can tell you that the debate between them are more trash than between Israelis and Palestinians. And this is something unique, but also showing that was the dream of Patrick Drahi when uh, he asked me to join this project, to launch an international network But when the day of peace will happen, this network will be in front line to show the new reality. People don't know abroad what are the Abraham Accords. People don't believe abroad about what are the Abraham Accords. I-24 News is here to show this reality, to show that it's not a paper signed at the White House, but there are a lot of deals in the business. There are a lot of connection people to people. And usually a media is monitoring what's going on in an area. I decided strategically to be part of the Abraham Accord, to be part of that dynamic and to become an actor of this new region. Because as I said before, the perception is the most important. The media are giving the perception. And if I-24 News can give the perception and to call And I'm using the opportunity to launch a call uh, to the international media and to tell them, guys, stop to focus only on the conflict. Yeah. You have to, of course, but move your camera also on the part which is growing now in the new Middle East, which are the Abraham Accords. And this is the new reality that I-24 News is showing every day. Uh, you did mention that you are now beaming into Australia because you've joined the suite of major international television news services on the recently launched Foxtel Flash platform, which offers live and on-demand news in Australia. Will that channel be providing current affairs in addition to the news? And will there be a content specifically for an Australian audience? I have to say, uh, we wanted to broadcast in Australia since a long time because a lot of people were asking us to, to be part of it. Of course, you can watch I-24 News all over the world on OTT platform, on digital, yeah. but on the cable, it was not possible. And I met Albert Adon in Australia a few years ago and he told me, Frank, I want to help you. It's, um, it's a shame that we cannot watch you because you are doing so much good things about the coexistence. It will change a lot of perception inside Australia. So he started to connect me with people and things start to happen since uh, Corona time. 
We started with a partnership with Sky News Australia because they wanted to know how it's going on in Israel with the corona because, you know, we were a lot of involved in the in the lockdown and everything and the vaccination. And as I said, I-24 News is the channel of the diversity. So I have also uh, some very good and strong Australian journalists uh, inside the newsroom. So it was good to use their accent. But I don't understand every day, but your audience can understand for cooperation and partnership with, uh, with Sky News. And after there was the war, the war between Israel and Hamas. And that was a good test because we started to have also a lot of requests from Australian media and especially uh, Sky News Australia. And I had a discussion with, uh, with the CEO and, uh, and I told him, look, we need to find a way. And he said, I have an idea. We are launching a, a very uh, strong platform uh, with uh, news streaming. And uh, I think you really deserve to be part of it. And we want to have you uh, for the launch. And we worked hard with the team here to connect with the fibers and everything because uh, satellites, it's not an easy issue uh, on your region. And I'm very glad that we are part of this flash offer because, again, I'm not targeting to influence the uh, Australian market with what's going on in Australia. I'm trying to connect Australia to the reality of the region and to show that if you start to be more focused on the culture of the people, on the behavior of the people, on the business side, you will find more similarities between Israelis and Australians than if you are only connected to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Well, it's certainly a good news story, that's for sure. Just finally, the modern media landscape includes social media platforms such as Facebook. According to the Pew Research Centre, almost half of Americans use social media as a news source. With such platforms also being major sources and disseminators of anti-Semitism, conspiracy theories and pseudoscience, what are the challenges that you see ahead for traditional news providers such as I-24 News? I think uh, social media is a nightmare. It's not easy for us to manage this. It's a nightmare for two reasons. First, everybody wants to be on social media. Every journalist of the network, it's not especially in I-24 News, it's all the network, they want to show their face on social media. So they are posting, 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 posting. So difficult to have a global strategy. More seriously, I'm telling the journalists, and this is what we are doing in I-24, especially in this region, to triple check when you are taking an information on Twitter or Facebook or another social network. Why? Because it's going very fast. Sometimes you can just copy past and, and fall in an ambush. And it happened. It will still happen. Even you are very focused on that because that's, that's the game. And people want to be the first one and say, ah, oh, I saw this, I saw that. So you don't check to the source anymore because you don't have time. You said, okay, if Wall Street Journal posts it, it's true. No, because it was exactly the same storytelling for Middle East. If Agence France Presse is talking about the Palestinian country or Palestinian issues, this is true. We are copy-pasting. This is the problem of the Middle East. Many, many journalists, and I saw that when I was in France 24, start to copy-paste Al Jazeera because it's Al Jazeera. The power of the brand is enough to tell you the truth about what's going on the ground. But that said, our strategy on social media is to provide content. Stories, 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 stories. And we are hiring a lot of young people 
French-speaking, English-speaking, and especially Arabic-speaking, explaining in Arabic what is an Arab-Israeli, what is the connection between the Arab-Israelis and Palestinians, what is for them to have Nord-Abraham Accords in the region. And you know, when you have a video of the BDS in one side, attacking, 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 and in the other side, a video of I-24 News in Arabic, from an Arabic guy, not a Jew speaking Arabic, yeah. from an Arabic guy telling them, look, I was born here. I grew up here. This is my life. Don't listen to the others. See behind me. This is the reality. So this is the way for us to use social media and to influence the storytelling inside the Middle East because we are posting fresh and original content. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Frank Malul, founder and CEO of I24 News, the Israeli international 24-hour news and current affairs television station, now available in Australia on the new Flash News streaming service. Go to flashnews.com.au to find out how you too can watch I24 News on your TV and mobile devices. Thank you so much for describing the history of this important service and for providing our listeners with insight into the future offered by the Abrahams Accords and the Foxtel Flash platform in Australia. Very much appreciated and uh, bon chance and uh, mazel tov and all the best for the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. I really appreciate to be with you today. You're tuned in to the Lachaim Summer Series on 92.3 FM, triple ZZZ, three triple Z, that's the one. With your host, Morris Klein, and yes, he is still my baby brother. The Australian Jewish community is blessed with the number of communal organisations we have down under, large and small, all with their excellent, important work. One of our major communal organisations is the Zionist Federation of Australia. The ZFA is the federal roof body of all Zionist organisations and activity in Australia, responsible for developing, enriching and supporting a meaningful relationship between the Australian Jewish community and the State of Israel. The ZFA has grown to become one of the most active Zionist federations across the globe and continues to be a relevant and central address for all Zionist activity throughout Australia. The Zionist Federation is committed to advocating for the State of Israel on behalf of the Jewish community and the Zionist movement in Australia and fostering a deep connection between Australia and Israel. Joining us tonight on Lachaim is the Israel Office Director of the ZFA, Moria Ben-David. Moria, welcome to Lachaim, to life, Jewish life and more. Thank you and thank you for having me. Moria, you are no stranger to our Melbourne Jewish community. Not so long ago, you spent a number of years down under on Shlichut here with B'nai Akiva, achieving great success. When was that? How did the Shlichut in Melbourne come about? So uh, we came on Shlichut in 2014. I came with my family. Um, I came to Melbourne. I was the Melbourne uh, B'nai Shlicha and also the federal Shlicha of uh, the B'nai uh, Community Youth Movement. And we stayed for three years until uh, August 2017. And I must say that I found, you know, home away from home in Melbourne. 
It was a, uh, a very embracing and loving community that I still refer to a lot of people that I, I know from, uh, from Melbourne as my family, and we still have strong connections. But believe it or not, you know, four years at the end of the Shlichut, we're still very, very close. And, you know, more than we impacted a community, I felt like it had a huge impact on me and on my family. On my kids, we grew. We grew and developed through this Lichut. Mori, I recall interviewing two senior B'nai Akiva Madrachim on my Shabbat Shalom program who told me that B'nai Akiva would get well over three, four hundred Hanachim at their meetings on a Shabbat. I was totally blown away and I believe that you were the driving force in achieving the numbers and growing the movement in a most inspiring way. Well done. It was wonderful. I, I, I still can't get over those numbers, and I still believe those numbers are ongoing. First of all, thank you. I think it's a joint effort of a lot of people that really dedicate everything, and they put their souls and their hearts, and, and they're active for this movement. I must say that before I was Shlicha, I was actually a head of the youth department in a municipality in Israel. And when we looked for different Shlichuyot, we wanted to go for something that will be big enough for me that I will feel like I'm, you know, it's not too small in terms of what I did before. And B'nai definitely gave me this sense of feeling that I'm fulfilling myself and, you know, I'm working in a, in a broadly way. And having 400 Chanichim is not an exaggeration. This is what we used to have on Shabbatot. And camps, it was very fulfilling. For me, that was the essence of Shlichut. Absolutely. Well done. Maria, your Shlichut comes to an end and you head back to Israel. When did you take on the position and the responsibility of the ZFA's Israel's office director? So basically, my Shlichut ended in 2017, but it didn't really end. You know, Australians come and go to Israel a lot. Some of them make Aliyah, some of them are going to Machal, going to the army. There are some who come, you know, to Shnat. And I felt like I keep on, you know, being involved in different ways with Australians, with Australia. And it didn't really leave us, you know. I, I, I was very, very connected. Some people say that Shlichut never ends. Once you're a Shaliach, you're going to be forever a Shaliach. And that was my feeling. Good feeling. And on 2019, I heard that Igal Sela, who is my predecessor, about to resign, and they're looking for someone. You know, I, I sent my CV, really hoping, I knew that it's a senior position and a lot of people would want to get it. And I was hoping that I would get it. And I was very happy when, you know, when I got it, because in a way, for me, it was also, you know, to do what I'm doing anyway, but actually to do it as a job. Of course, it has more aspects and more elements to it. But the fact that I can continue having, you know, a relationship, a connection with Australia and Australians and with the Jewish community in large, it gave me a lot of satisfaction. And I'm, I'm super happy with what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm loving my job, really. I'm waking up every morning, super grateful that this is what I got. Terrific. Now, Maria, we all know the great work the ZFA does in Australia with all the organisations under its umbrella, along with the ZFA affiliates and much more. Most of the work needs to be coordinated and facilitated through the ZFA's Israel's office. Please take us through the extensive work that the ZFA's office does in Israel. Right. So basically, because, you know, the ZFA is, is a Zionist federation, most or all of the stuff is connected somehow to Israel. So a lot of the things need a person on ground. So I find myself in many ways of the representative, the ambassador of the ZFA here in Israel, working with different organizations 
especially with the Jewish Agency and the World Zionist Organization and its departments, which, you know, there are a lot. There's also Masa that I work very closely with, bringing the Shnatis here. The Shnatis sometimes have um, seminars in years without COVID. We have a seminar, opening seminar and a closing seminar. So it's something that I facilitate together with the AZYC. If it's like lately we had all the ZFA uh, conversations once a month, we get like someone from Israel to speak to the community. So it's something that I organize. You know, I approach the people, if it's MKs, ministers, media, and as well as thinking about new initiatives, how to connect or to bring Israel to Australia in different ways. So I think with every single department in the ZFA, which is, you know, Taglit, Israel programs, uh, the partnership, yeah, the Arava partnership, all of these, I have something, you know, to do with them. But there's also things that, you know, the Israel office does by itself here in Israel for itself. Moria, the um, cholera COVID has played havoc with all our communal organisations here in Australia and around the world. How has the ZFA office in Israel coped? What are some of the major changes that uh, you have needed to implement or improvise? How have you coped? So COVID basically hit six months after I started my role. And in the first six months, actually, we hosted here a huge delegation of senior politicians from Australia. One of them was John Howard, a former prime minister, and, you know, other ex-ministers. And that was really big. And we also had a huge gala here with the head of the Jewish agency and the prime minister and the president and everyone. So that was my first few months. And then Corona hit and then things really changed. And I think that the major change was the fact that we don't have delegations. We don't have Australians that come to Israel. So the physical, you know, face-to-face meeting or gatherings or things that we facilitate for Australians that, you know, come to visit, we don't have it anymore. And we kind of had to reinvent ourselves. And I think that the Israel office more than any other department, but it also brought opportunities. So I think that one of the most important thing was to see what we have here on ground, like all the Australians that we do have here in Israel and how we basically elevate the things that we do here will bring more meaning. So for example, the whole Olim aspect, you know, that we work with Telfed. Telfed is the South African uh, Zionist Federation, and they provide the services to Olim, the Australians Olim that come here. We, of course, we supervise, but they give us, you know, it's a, it's a resource for us uh, that they help with biocracy and stuff. But we felt in the past two years that, you know, Olim cannot fly to Australia or it's, it's very hard to fly to Australia And they really need this place that they will feel, you know, a bit of the Australian flavor that they miss so much. They miss family. I don't know if you look sometimes at Facebook pages of Australians living in Israel, how they talk about it, that they they really miss home and they miss family and they miss, you know, even the small things, the Vegemite and the. So we try to facilitate different gatherings for them so they will be able to sense a little bit of Australia here in Israel. Another thing that we did with Olim was, for example, the Arava partnership usually brings a delegation of madrishim for the summer camp in the Arava. In the past two years, they couldn't bring them. So what we did was we approached Olim or kids that are here on Shnat or happen to be in Israel, but they live in Australia. And they went through a screening process, of course, and everything. But we brought them as madrishim to the Arava. 
So I think we were the only partnership across Israel that managed to bring during COVID Australians, like someone from abroad, to participate in a uh, a partnership activity. So that was pretty big. So we try to find ways to make these connections um, in different ways. Of course, that Zoom also was a huge help. Like it was a huge advantage. A minister, you know, the diaspora minister spoke a few times uh, with the leadership of the ZFA and the leadership of the Jewish community. All these Zoom, the ZFA conversations that we worked very hard on. That I think that that was an advantage because we brought Israel to the screen, to Australians on the screen. So it was easy and handy. Moria, there's a very important event happening tomorrow in the north of Israel, um, commemorating a battle that took place the 25th of September, 1918. What is the day all about? Right. So this is another good um, example of, you know, what, what we do with Corona. The Israel office works with a lot of organizations that have something to do with Australia. We try to cooperate all the time. So with the embassy, we work very, uh, very closely with and, you know, the IACC, the Israel-Australian Chamber of Commerce, of course, the Ganguru. Lately, we had, um, you know, a nice event there, the Australian Park. And now we, we have with the Kinneret College, in the past few years, the Kinneret College started a service. It's a ceremony to basically commemorate a battle that happened in Tzemach. Tzemach is a little bit southern to, to Tiberia. It's on the shore of the Kinneret, really on the south of the Kinneret. And in, in World War I, there was a very important battle that happened there. The Ottomans and the Germans uh, were trying to basically get to, to Damascus, and the British tried to stop them. And Semach was a very strategic spot on the way. And what was unique about this battle is that the Anzac Light Horse Brigades had this battle during the night, so they weren't able to check out the terrain before, and they won. You know, believe it or not, they won this battle. It was very heroic. They also paid tribute to uh, the Aboriginal soldiers. Before COVID, they had people from different organizations, military organizations in Australia that used to come to the service. Last year, we didn't have this memorial uh, event because of COVID, but this year it was doable. But again, we couldn't bring people from Australia. So the Kinneret College asked me if it's, you know, if I can bring Olim to, to an event like that. And I said, you know what, let's try. But if we're already schlepping people all the way to Tzemach up north, so let's have something a bit bigger. And like, we'll have a whole Australian day that Olim will be able to do a few things and then in the end go to this service. So we got for the Olim free tickets to the Ganguru, to the Australian Zoo, uh, which is also like 20 minutes away. And then they're having a, a picnic, a bring your own picnic with Barbies that will be lit and a nice tour also in the train station that was there in Temach um, and then the service. And we have, as of now, we have around 60 people who registered and I'm super, you know, proud of this number because I didn't believe that we're going to have, think about it, we're talking about after Chag, we're talking about people going back to work and it's up north, it's not, you know, in the center of Israel, but people are keen to come and it means that, you know, there is a need for this. Hope that it's going to be a tradition, you know. That Terrific, the whole day, it's a day of uh, Australiana and, and commemorating, remember the fallen soldiers, I believe there were 17 soldiers that were lost, but it was a terrific victory, a very important victory. Right. Maria Ben-David, Director of the ZFA, Zionist Federation of Australia's Israel Office, 
thank you so much for your time and for joining us on Lachaim, Two Life, Jewish Life and More with your extensive, very important work. You've been a delight. Yasha Koyach to you. A great day for all tomorrow. Let's touch base again mid-2022. I would love it. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. And Chag Sameach, or Motzei Chag Sameach, to all of those who are listening to us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. That's just about it. But before we go, let's hear tomorrow's AJN Australian Jewish News headlines. And now for headlines from tomorrow's Australian Jewish News, the voice of Australia's Jewish community. Australia's gift to Israel. Amnesty Apartheid report slammed. A Holocaust museum in every state and territory. ScoMo Shower Reflections. Parting other ways for Lazaro and TBI. Leaders fume over Litzman plea deal. Security funding for East Melbourne and Hobart Schulz. Herzog hails peace on UAE trip. Whoopi doubles down in race row. Backlash as mouse pulled from US schools. To read more coverage of local, federal and international news, opinion, arts, lifestyle and sport, pick up your copy of the Australian Jewish News from newsagents and supermarkets in southeast of Melbourne or for weekly home delivery, subscribe at subscribe.jewishnews.net.au. Have you heard the news? What did it say? Well, that closes out our Lechaim Summer Series, showcasing many of our excellent guests who joined us on Lechaim during our first year here on 92.3 FM, 3 Triple Z, as part of the Jewish group, which includes the Hebrew and Yiddish hours. Personally, I have really enjoyed the Summer Series, listening again to the work, the great proactive work by our guests for our Jewish community in Israel. The first guest tonight, Lieutenant Colonel Reserve Zaritza Harvey with whom I've worked closely in the past, being just one of the many standouts. As always, the Middle East continues to percolate, so the Jerusalem Post 45th Most Influential Israeli, Lieutenant Colonel Reserve Zaritza Harvey, founder of the NGO ALMA, monitoring the security issues on Israel's northern borders, will be joining us again very soon on Lachaim and throughout the year with her expert, updated assessment on the recent developments in the Middle East. So, summer series over. We'll be back next week with my Lachaim co-presenter, Dr. Mori Frankel, along with the Lachaim regulars, our Israel radio tour guide, Effie Jacobi, and two new very interesting guests to kick off the second year of Lachaim. Thanks to our Lachaim executive producer, Dr. George Banky. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's Lachaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. If you'd like to check out any of our programs or podcasts from 2021, simply Google Anchor Lachaim 2 Life Programs and Podcasts 
or go to the Jewish Life page on the Social Blueprint Jewish Resources website. All the links are there. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. The Hebrew Hour, 3pm on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11am on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at L'Chaim, our email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. For only $16, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. And for seniors, it's just $11. Again, click on 3zzz.com.au. So thank you for tuning in, and please join us again next week on L'Chaim. My name is Morris Klein. I'm Yisrael Chai, and peace.